Hello, and welcome to another episode of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin, here with the holly jolly Teos Abadia. Teos, tell me, how's it going? Uh, it's beginning to look a lot like the time when I need to put Christmas Vacation in the DVD player and force my family to watch it. Mm. The kids are allergic to watching a movie more than Yet once. Again. Every year I make them do it. So it's mm. just the gift that keeps on giving, Clark. Uh, has Child Protective Services been called? No, but I did still arrive this weekend. I uh, climbed the ladder yet again, did not kill myself. I was in the mall, mm. did not die. So it's all win. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I also got mauled uh, this this weekend, also survived. And uh, yeah, we, we live to tell the tale after after. Struggling into the capitalist <laughs> center of, of the universe. Ah, uh, yes. Well, what's not a struggle is doing this podcast and talking to everybody out there and talking to our listeners who, uh, who sometimes send us missives. So we are going to talk about a couple of these missives right now. The first uh, comes to us, I don't know who, who oh, uh, Lazale. Uh, asked us, you've discussed 4E skill challenges, and I was wondering what your thoughts were on the Descending Difficulties article that was presented by Gnome Stew. And so I love Gnome Stew, so I went off to see what this was all about, and it was an article discussing uh, skill checks that start with very improbable or practically impossible, but then lowering as things are done to finally get to a point where the players uh, and their characters can perform this check. It was written by former Mastering Dungeons co-host Chris Nizak, who knows a thing or two about game design. Uh, the example that Chris used was a red cap. And a red cap, if you don't know, is a fey creature that wears, of all things, a red cap. And they dip their cap in the blood of their victims, which sort of gives them some power. So Chris talked about designing an encounter where it wasn't just a red cap, but it was the red cap. And this red cap was extremely powerful. And the, one of the ways that the players might deal with this red cap is to remove its cap. However, removing the cap would then be a super high difficulty at first. But as the characters figure out ways to get the cap off this red cap, the, the DC lowers and lowers and lowers until it gets to a point where the characters actually have a, a good chance to, um, to, to remove it. And, and Chris goes off and, and uh, describes the process of doing this, outlining the process where you, you think of the situation, you uh, think of the stakes of mm -hmm. success or failure, the difficulty that it would take to do this, and then the actions that it would take to do this. And he also gives another example of stopping a magical ritual in progress before it is completed and, and things happen. And this, this, for me, it was a good, over, very good overview of this sort of situation where you want to do something that is tense and dramatic but is not necessarily just combat. I have lots of things to say about this, but I'm going to uh, hand it over to Teos first 
yeah. to see if he has any thoughts. Sure. I, I liked a lot of what this article was saying. Um, and, and Chris has such neat ideas. And to me, it, it's the kind of thing that as a DM, you want to do all the time. Like, just think creatively, come up with a weird way to to adjust the the rules, right? And say like, well, normally a DC is X or Y, but what if I just throw it way high and then it gets reduced over time? And that's a neat idea. And I like how Chris explains the different applications, right? Doing something to a, a beast, a creature, a foe that can't be taken down. Otherwise, um, disabling the ritual. Those are great things. And, and, and it ties into a lot of conversations I've been having recently where folks will say things like, I don't know what to do to make, you know, my boss a challenge. And this can be one of those things that makes it a challenge, right? Like his armor is so impenetrable. He has a force field, you know, something. So you've got to do something else to bring it down. Uh, and this can be a possible way. However, <laughs> what I've often found in play is that if my intention is for the players to have their characters do a thing round after round, whether it's try to disable the trap uh, before he had this, where traps generally took four checks to disable, right? Um, and, and the idea is you want this character to just like work at this thing. They will seldom do that unless it's really clear how awesome it is and it's tangible to them because they will feel like, oh, well, that's not working. Or this isn't, you know, I should just attack because attacking is what I do. It's what the game propels me forward to doing. It's what all my character sheet seems to suggest because <laughs> forget about that skill section. So I find it's really hard to do this, right? And so yeah. like in the, in, in the adventure my son and I wrote, The Clockwork Tower, we want it to be cool to take on this device at the end. And we, we use a lot of techniques to reinforce that you are making progress so that it's evocative and, and continues to pull you in to do more to this machine. Uh, because otherwise, mm -hmm. everybody just attacks the obvious foe and, and it's only a combat, you know, kind of things. I'll stop there. What were you going to say, Sean? Say, Sean? Mm -hmm. No, I, I was going to say exactly what you mm. said. I have attempted these sorts of encounters hundreds of times over many editions of D&D. &D. Mm. And having run them, uh, having written them poorly, uh, having run them poorly, having, run, having designed them what I think is great, and running them how I think they should be run and still having them go poorly has taught me that it is a very, very subtle uh, and situational uh, exercise to, to do these things. Yeah. As you say, and as our experiences with hundreds, if not thousands of players over the years has spelled out, is people want to do the best thing. Mm -hmm. They want to optimize their turn. And most players understand what their characters do well. They understand that their best use of the bonus action for the fighter is to take the extra attack. Mm -hmm. their, their best option for the rogue's bonus action is to hide. Their best attack action is to do this. Their best reaction is to do this. And so if you set up an alternative sort of encounter like this, they are loath to do anything that costs them in an action. Yeah. The only way, as, as you said, Teos, to get them to do these things is to explain it. And not only explain it, but explain it in such gory mechanical detail that they will then understand, oh, 
So my optional, my, my optimal choice because of this situation is to do act, use my action to do an athletics check as opposed to an attack. By the time that you explain it to the point where most players actually <laughs> grok what's going on, yeah. you've stepped so far outside of the story that it's it becomes inorganic. You want this to, to be exciting and fun and quick, and you want them to understand that the Red Caps hat makes it super mm -hmm. powerful. And if you get that hat off, it will be a much easier fight. Unless you spell it out to the point yeah. where the characters understand that they cannot win unless they attack, they're just going to keep attacking. Yeah. Especially if the DC is 30 and the first player says, well, I'm going to, I have a plus 12 to my athletics check. I'm just going to wrestle that off. Roll. Okay, I'm plus 12. I rolled a 17. That's a 29. And you say you fail. No matter how much you've explained, that's going to feel bad. And yeah. people are going to like, well, I'm not going to try that again. So if you say, but each time you try it, if the DC goes down, they don't care. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and so it, it takes a game that already has a problem with the switch between mechanics and story mm -hmm. and makes that even worse. Yeah. And I to do it really well, then as Chris says, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So with that example with the red cap, I think that it, it there's a real difference. And this is the kind of thing that I love doing as DM is seeing these comparatives, right? That if you say mid combat, oh, you know, the the hat is looks like it's the source of Alt's power and someone tries to get it and they fail. And you go, oh, you know, you couldn't get it. It seems like maybe it magically is tied to his head, but it's perhaps a little looser or something like that. It might be a little easier next time. Mm -hmm. No, but. If way back before we get yeah. to this fight, we we have them, you know, meet the hag mm -hmm. who in exchange for something says the key to defeating this red cap is to remove its hat. But it is no simple task. You will have to have the patience of mm -hmm. the, you know, whatever creature only then. Yeah. Right. Then they know, ah, my goal is work at this till we succeed. And they come in with that. Then it mm -hmm. will work. Right. <laughs> But right. you try to do it, and then and, and you you literally right, and you literally then have to go through the steps that they will need yeah. to take with the hag. First, says the hag, you must sever the magical connection between the creature and its hat. Yeah, this will require knowledge of magic plus siphoning your your spells into yeah a check or yeah something. Yeah. Then not only that, it is physically connected via several locks and you must you must unlock the lock okay okay we're going to need to do a sleight of hand please well, still check but only we, then can right and now this is goes right back to the question which is this is now a skill challenge like fourth edition did right right, right. yeah now, and, now and yeah. so it's <laughs> it's it's super fun with the right group and the right game master and the right situation and and if you hit every everything pinpoint perfect in terms of actions that it takes and and all of that, then it could be super fun. Yeah. And and so Chris, like Chris is showing us the tip of the iceberg with this. Yeah. Uh and and more and more and more could be, as we've done, described to to make it really sing. Yeah. 
And even if you get it absolutely perfect, you're still going to have players out there who just want to use their actions and bonus actions and reactions and movement to do the most damage because that's what they built their characters to do. Yeah. Uh, so even then, sometimes you, you, you're lost as a designer. Yeah. But yeah, at least this starts, gives us a, a starting point to discuss these these sorts of things. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'll give one last example, which is that, and it's funny how some designers see these problems from the very beginning. I remember at the very beginning of fourth edition, there was a trap in one of the early Living Forgotten Realms adventures that was, I think it was two crossbow traps firing at you. And the intention of 4E was four checks would disable it because the idea was four attacks, take down a monster, four rounds of doing stuff. Yeah. And so the intention was, you know, like, well, a character will spend four rounds. But what they did was, when you succeeded on the first check, the turrets slowed down their rate of fire or something like that. And it was tangible immediately, right? Mm -hmm. Second check, one of them turned off. Right. Third check, the other one was at big penalties. And then the fourth check, they were both disabled. So each time it was a measurable like, oh, and they did a lot of damage, right? So, so you could, the rogue or whoever mm -hmm. decided to interact with these things was like, I am doing something every time and, and that was tangible mm -hmm. and and that was I, I copied from that from then on because it, you know if you did it otherwise yeah it was foolish and, and a lot of encounters that were otherwise people would just yeah. ignore the trap until the combat is done and then often what the dm would do and so players learned off of this is the dm would just hand wave disabling the trap well you killed all the monsters you're going to disable the trap so the trap would no longer attack them even though technically it should still be firing, we should all still be in combat. And then players really learn, oh yeah, right. ignore the trap, the DM will hand wave it. <laughs> and that's... <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep. So that's why those, you know, understanding the stakes, getting the stakes right, and the situation right is also just as important as the difficulty class uh, and the actions for, for yeah. your steps. So thank you. Uh, to Lazelle for pointing us to that story. Uh, always a big fan of, of everybody there at Gnome Stew. And the other question we got this week was from Shadow Main via our Patreon Discord, saying, after game sessions, I've heard one player not happy with another player at the table. For example, they're hogging the spotlight, they're talking over me, etc. I haven't noticed this, although I'm paying attention to giving each player time. How can I tell when a player is frustrated? Uh, Deus, got any, uh, got yeah, any I mean, words there of was some nice, any gems? Well, there were some really good conversations about this. And, and, and one of them that I kind of side with was just sort of that you often can't. Um, so you, you try to, you know, but you're doing a lot of things. So you, it can be hard to miss these cues. The other thing is that it may be that the, sometimes a, this is like really true, right? And so we can, if we really wake ourselves up to it, yeah, we notice this player keeps interrupting the other, right? Um, but it might be that the player feels interrupted. We don't feel like it's really an interruption. So you don't always know. And you can't always be aware of everything. So how do we tell if a player is frustrated? We often have to check in with our players and just say, how are things going periodically, right? And just uh, I, I like doing surveys every now and then. So I'll just do a Google form. There are often things I want to know about the campaign itself. Like, are the factions resonating? 
uh, are the combats too hard or are they exciting enough? You know, those kinds of questions. And then I kind of say also, like, is there anything that else you want to share with me? Anything that would make play more fun and any, any issues with how gameplay is at the table? And that's where they can say, you know, I feel like I'm always talked over. Then, then we can address that. What do you think, Sean? Yeah. No, that's absolutely the case. People hesitate to DM for a lot of reasons, or they feel challenged when they DM for a lot of reasons. And a lot of advice we always talk about, you know, knowing the rules and how, or, uh, you know, being a, an entertaining DM, doing voices. We don't think about the social aspect of it as much as we should. And we've talked here before about DMs being like a teacher. Mm -hmm. A lot of the same skills or processes in teaching you use in, in, in DMing. And another one is sort of like project manager or uh, like meeting facilitator. So if you have to do that in your job, if you have to have people meet and discuss things and you sort of lead the meeting, and then after the meeting, you might send out something saying, hey, how'd the meeting go? Is there anything we missed? Right. Uh, anything I, we could do better? It's the exact same thing. Like you say, Teos, uh, surveys, mm -hmm. just an open invitation, and a, a personal email to each of your players the day after the session saying, hey, how's it going? Uh, anything change is 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 a huge deal and they're more likely to be you know a one-on-one -on -one answer will likely be more honest than asking everyone uh yeah. where everyone else can see yeah so it's it's just social yeah it is social and, and it can be hard to address them right because then the second step one is is being aware of it and two is is addressing it and depending on sort of how you interpret it you can reach out to one or both mm -hmm. parties, right? So it might be that you go, yeah, actually, when I think about it, that person really is often cutting them off. So I might say, hey, you know, I want you to be a little careful around cutting other people off and make sure that I, I know your character is this, that, and the other, but, you know, make sure that other people can, can finish what they're doing. Um, and I will mm -hmm. do things like, you know, if someone's talking to an NPC and then someone else says something, and this happens a lot in play, especially at conventions um, where, you know, the NPC, you say something. Player one starts saying something. Player two takes that idea and jumps off of it to really kind of like steal the, the concept. And I'll have the NPC listen and then say, I really like what you're both saying. And I'll turn to the person that originated the idea and say, tell me more about what you're thinking. Right. So I give the spotlight back to them right. deliberately because they started it. Right. They called it. The other person jumped off of it. Yeah. And I appreciate their enthusiasm, but I want to make sure that other person gets recognized because they were the first one. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And they're like Teos just did. There are subtle ways to to get this across. The one thing that if you can uh, do it is not to say, hey, Jane, Jill mm -hmm. thinks you're talking over her. Yeah. You know, you say, Jane, I've noticed that there are times when other people are talking and your enthusiasm, while great, mm -hmm. uh, tends to overwhelm them. And that, uh, so, right, if you take, you take that onto yourself, it's less likely to cause friction between the players. And then you can, again, become the conduit for not just 
the gameplay, but for the social yeah. play as well. Totally, totally. Mm -hmm. So uh, I hope that answered that question. Thank you both Shadow Main and Lazelle for, for those questions. And if you have questions, you can hit us up via all the ways, via our Patreon, Discord, uh, Twitter, uh, Blue Sky, what am I forgetting? Mastodon, Mastodon. YouTube. Uh, yeah, Patreon webpage, all the, the Discord, above. all of it. Yep. And now we're going to get to our news and commentary section, starting with a little tiny crowdfunded game that launched a couple of days ago. MCDM's uh, crowdfunding their game via backer, backer kit. And within the first 24 hours, did it raise 100,000? No. 200? No. Half a million? No. A million? No. 1.5 million? No. All the way up to $2 million within the first 24 hours. And as we record this, it's it's flirting with $3 million. And it still has over three weeks to go. So congratulations, MCDM. Congratulations, James Tricasso, Matt Colville and all the folks there who worked on this game yeah. and who will be working on this game for the next 18 months because <laughs> uh, it is not something that's ready to, to go out right now. This is really being funded yeah. uh, via, via crowdfunder as opposed to just being a pre-sale uh, use. Which what is which is remarkable. Here, well, I mean, that part is remarkable. That that I mean, I think in a lot of ways, early Kickstarters were reflecting the concept of Kickstarter, which was you have an idea, get the money to make it happen, and then everybody was disappointed when you know the project wouldn't show up for years, or it would get canceled, or it would not end up being what you wanted it to be, and so it became the like finish your project, tell people, give people a sample, and say, hey, this thing's going to ship on this date once I you know finish the last little tiny bits. That became the way to do it. And MCDM's like, no, we're crowdfunding now for 18 months from now. Uh, and in Q2, we're going to give you, you know, something that will be playable. Uh, that's our target. But, you know, all dates can slip and the game could end up being different and all of that. Um, so that's interesting to me that that did not limit, clearly has not seemed to limit who backs it. And the other part is they have chosen to be very transparent about the process and to stay engaged throughout the development process. And typically what happens is people hide, right? You go to your bunkers and you design your RPG and you, it's quiet time. And then you say, we have an RPG. And yeah. MCDM has chosen to share every bit of the process, even when it's things like, you know, I worked on a system with them and it ended up not being like it was too big, you know? And so they were like, okay, we're not going to go with this approach. And then Matt tried it and it didn't work for Matt. And so who knows what it'll end up being, right? And they share all those warts of the process. And that has not dissuaded people from wanting to back it. It's perhaps even been more attractive. And I think that's, that's perhaps a lesson for the industry yeah. that it is a possible approach. It's risky, but it's, but it's an interesting approach. Well, it, it's a possible approach to you if your main vehicle for bringing people in was that yeah right true. that that that's been matt's whole thing yeah. and so it's totally reasonable to do that is it reasonable for every company to do that <laughs> absolutely not yeah. if if other companies tried to do that they would just the opposite would happen people Probably. would quit people would stop 
because that's not the way that things get done. Mm-hmm. Not just in the game industry, but in general. Yeah. Uh, not to say that you shouldn't seek feedback and, and mm-hmm. do things like that, but with 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 processes, there's as you said, there's different ways you can do it. And MCDM is in that position where Matt is right out there. The, his yeah. their fans love that, and so they're going to get that. But to have people say every company should do this, mm-hmm. or look yeah. at they're so honest, <laughs> yeah. uh, and other companies are dishonest, sure. that that's just not that's yeah. just not the case. Yeah, no, this totally. is not the case. And and I'm glad that it works like that for them because yeah. it's fun, it's entertaining, uh, it's its own little show, it's its own little um, yeah. byproduct, if you will, of of being a, a backer. So and and that's great, and yeah. that's great, uh, but not for everybody. But as long as Matt can make that work and James is you know the little engine that could in the background keeping keeping every keeping the wheels going I like that yeah they're they're gonna do just fine and it's gonna be a good game yeah yeah absolutely it's gonna be a good game i already know it will be and it is fun you know they've got the up for offering is the heroes book so it's the player book it's the monsters book um at this time they are not envisioning a, a dm book and then the two books are also available in a deluxe version called the ajax edition which i think they sold out of, of it and then they said okay we're making a wave two but we've checked with our distributor and we can't make a wave three so you know if you want it you got to get it so i mean just, which is something right when you make a deluxe version and you're like sorry we can't give you more of these even though this is highly profitable for us <laughs> we can't get a printer that will make you more so <laughs> that's a wonderful problem to have right yeah yeah um <laughs> uh- and speaking of things that are in process and upgrading, mm-hmm. Roll20 is overhauling its virtual tabletop. They are calling it JumpGate, and they announced that they are going to modernize their virtual tabletop. They're, they're going right down into the very depths of their code to update the platform. Um, rendering engines, web components, everything will be updated to be faster and allow for features to be updated more quickly. Uh, thoughts on that, Teos? I mean, I can't help but say that this is a reaction to the virtual tabletop from Wizards of the Coast and maybe even just the maps, uh, you know, because that's something that's being done with fairly new technology and therefore it's easy to add features for, for Wizards. Um, so, you know, sometimes innovation breeds more innovation um, and that can be good for everybody. Um, I think this is great. Roll20 has felt like a virtual tabletop that while they've been working hard, clearly they're making enhancements all the time. It's felt like it had this old part of the engine that was just making it hard to tack on improvements. And so going back and modernizing it from the very inside, that's a difficult thing to do tech wise, but it, I think it is the right thing to do. Um, they they said, you know, we want to make sure so that everything from a potato to the latest gaming PC can smoothly play a game on Roll20. And and I laugh, but also this is very important because I've had situations where like I ran um, D&D through the Baldwin Games virtual games uh, for folks in Spanish and people who were in Latin America would say, you know, I can only run things off my phone and, you know, it's not that new a phone. 
And so even roll 20, you know, it's hard for me to roll. You know, I'm just going to drop from the game. I'm not going to play. So having that ability to run off of almost anything, that's a real advantage. And it's something that, that I worry about with the D&D virtual tabletop, that they will not, it will not be easy enough for just anybody around the world to play. And most of the world doesn't tend to own a desktop computer. The phone has really replaced a lot of things. And so like, you know, when my daughter went to Japan, nobody had desktop computers unless you were in an office working. Um, you know, no kid at school had a, a home computer for use for things like this. So, so I think if they want to go global, then, which Roll20 does have a big international base, this is really smart. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, like you said, I think the virtual tabletop that Wizards is previewing uh, did that. I think Maps did that, mm -hmm. right? I think Maps was quite, I think it shocked not just players. I think it shocked the industry to say, wait a second, we're waiting for this big grand virtual tabletop. If they're going to also publish this yeah. very slimmed down version, that's really easy to use and looks like it's free if you have uh, you know, normal access to <laughs> So yeah, a normal subscription to DMV Beyond, that's that's a game changer. So yes. I'm glad this is happening. I, I think it's a necessary step. The people who I've talked to sort of on the inside of the OBS uh, mm -hmm. and Roll20 team knew this had to happen uh, and yeah. wish it, wished it could have happened sooner. <laughs> but now we will see. Uh, now it's the hard part. Right. The hard part is making it work yeah. and making it work to the expectations of a community that are soon going to have a lot of different options. Uh, mm -hmm. Whereas before, World 20 was it. Yeah. Now, yes, there were other ones. Yes, but this was sort of the standard and everyone was using yeah. it. So you you had that you had that access of, no, that's what my DM's using, so I have to use it. And so I learned it. So now I use it. That's going to change. Yeah, we'll and you have how to, it goes, and we. Yeah, you have to maintain that competitive advantage, um, especially when you see someone enter the space that already has a locked customer base through D and D Beyond, um, because like on virtual mm -hmm. uh, the virtual weekends through Baldman Games, Roll Twenty is by far the most common platform. You see games in Fantasy Ground, you see games mm -hmm. just run on Discord and a few other places, but you know it really is. Roll20 being the number one game engine for virtual tabletops. And so, you know, you want to you want to keep on to that. And you know that, if, that you go further and further down the road where you're struggling with what your code is built on. And so, yeah, great. All right. We will keep an eye on everything happening there. And if you have any thoughts, you know where to find us. We have speaking of virtual tabletops, now seeing reports from PAX Unplugged about people who got a chance to try the virtual tabletop. What has the overall tenor been? The overall tenor has been really, really positive. And not only has it been positive, but it's been positive from sources that are really Watsy detractors who are begrudgingly admitting that they went in hoping to come back with a report that it was terrible and that it hadn't nothing had changed. Yeah. And and they were like, this is really good. Uh, so Teos, what, what have you read? 
I mean, that made me laugh a lot just to see folks were just, you know, their thumbnails are, you know, screaming faces and, and the titles are things like as wizards, uh, you know, is, is, is Hasbro going bankrupt as wizards dead? What will happen after, you know, from the, what will rise from the ashes of dead D and D. And then they're like, this was an amazing experience. We had so much fun. The virtual tabletop is incredible. Um, so that was amazing, but uh, so good job marketing team, apparently. Um, but also it, it looks like they've added a number of features since April. And that's what I was really curious about because in April, when they did the, the, at the summit, they had folks use it. And then there was a small play test group that came or one or two play test groups that sort of shared experiences after that. And it sounded like it was just the same as what we'd seen in April. So now many months later, have there been improvements? And the answer was yes. Um, one of the reviewers, playtesters called it Digital Dwarven Forge, where you can pick building blocks such as a wall, a door, a tree, and you can kind of menu through them and pick that block and just put it down. And you can put it again and again like you would with a paintbrush program. Um, so you can very easily sort of, you know, paint a row of walls or drop in doors. That's really cool. You could not do anything like that in April. It was all just solid pre-made, you know, buildings and things like that. Um, it does sound like a lot of the content now comes from within D&D Beyond for sure. Um, so the first step is you've got to be in D&D Beyond with your character, with your monsters, with all of that being in there, and then you're bringing those elements over. So as much as there was talk recently from Wizards of, yeah, it'd be great if you know the virtual tabletop was used for other RPGs, the reality is we should not expect any support there, right? Because they're not going to add freely games into D&D Beyond, and we're not going to see Pathfinder in D&D Beyond. But if your game uses polyhedrals and you're OK with having, you know, the minis and the maps that are in, D that are in the virtual tabletop, sure, you could use that. But it's not something where we should expect this sort of active support. So uh, if you had the chance to um, check out the VTT at any point, let us know what you thought. In the meantime, Midwest Game Fest was going on, and there were several online seminars. One of them I got a chance to sit on. The Evolution of 5e panel was hosted by Zach Goins, and we had Rich Lescoufler, Alan Tucker, Dave uh, David Friant of Nerdarchy, Alphineas Goo of Gooey Games, uh, along to chat about where we've seen 5e changing since its release about 10 years ago and uh what we think might be coming forward it was it was fun it was a great panel they have a whole bunch of other panels as well available on twitch um, some i think were being moved to youtube so if you just search on midwest game fest you can see uh panels i know that andrew basinski hosted one about Star Trek Adventures cool. with some of the Star Trek Adventure uh, designers, so it didn't. It wasn't just D and D; it was all sorts of role playing games, and uh, you can find it on Twitch by following the link in our show notes. Fantastic! How about some creator and crowdfunding news, Teos? What you got for us? Well, the first thing I noted was an awesome blog from Scott Fitzgerald Gray, friend of the show. Uh, he talked about foundations. Uh, of fast prep and this was a reaction to something MT Black had asked about which he'd, he'd I think on, I forgot on which platform Blue Sky or something he'd said what's the formula for a low prep highly enjoyable two-hour adventure and Scott just spits out 
Map of old ruins, five rooms or so, two cool traps of hazards, one of, a, one of them placed conspicuously at the entrance, two easy encounters, and then this is the one that really caught my eye. One incorporeal or teleporting hard encounter stalks the characters, then attacks just after the second easy fight finishes. And I thought, what? But Scott knows his stuff, and he goes on to explain how to make this work. Mm -hmm. And, and there's a lot of deliberate, I mean, I really check out on missivesfrommooncastle.blogspot.com how he explains all these different pieces and why they work so well as just a go-to two-hour adventure sequence. Um, things like the first trap, by being obvious, teaches the players to engage and be cautious and rewards them for interacting with things, right? Brilliant. And then the, this villain that is incorporeal or somehow inaccessible but shows its face early on becomes now a known entity, right? Instead of getting to the end and there's some cultist that we've never seen before doing the ritual and you got to stop them, you have seen this person before, right? So the eventual confrontation feels desirable and like, like a release valve, right? Like, ah, now we can take you on, right? But, and also because it piggybacks mm -hmm. onto that easy fight, it makes this a challenging encounter because you haven't recovered from it. So re really some neat thoughts here. And I, I fully enjoyed this. This was a great read. Yeah, I mean, Scott is, is right on with this. And the advice in here, when we discuss the next part of the adventure later on in this episode, uh, we'll, we'll get actually come back to some of the things that Scott mentions here when we talk about that adventure. Mm -hmm. Uh, the last bit of creator news is that you can get $10 off Monty Cook Games, and that money goes to the RPG Creators Relief Fund. So every year, Monty Cook Games uses a charity. This year, it is that RPG Creators Relief Fund. Monty Cook Games will give you a $10 coupon code. Go to the site, buy what you're going to buy, use that coupon code, and... Uh, you will be giving not only money to uh, Monty Cook Games for their great products, but also uh, ten dollars going to that uh, relief fund. Yeah. And I, I what believe does you can the relief even, fund cover, Tails? Yeah, and I think you can even uh, go like just like cash in the code and and give the the relief fund you know ten dollars because they get a hundred percent at ten dollars. It's not proceeds. Okay. It's not anything like that. They get all of it. Uh, but then you can also, you know, get a five dollar item or whatever, and, and you know, and now it's yours, and you just gave, you know, that amount to to the relief fund. Um, so the relief fund helps creators who fall in hard times because this is a huge problem in our industry, right? Folks who have any number of illnesses, calamities that happen, unexpected accidents, things like that, and, and they can appeal to the relief creators relief fund, and the relief fund helps them uh, get through that that problem. So this is a very good benefit to the industry as a whole when you give money to this organization. So you can check that out at montycookgames.com and, and look for the charity gift link. And a little bit of extra news that just dropped as we finished recording. D&D Adventures League has announced the 50th anniversary Dungeons & Dragons special event at GaryCon. It is called Legacy of Worlds, and Teos is going to tell us all about it. Yeah, so Legacy Worlds looks like it is a um, 
weekly epic streaming show that will take well-known characters to well-known worlds from D&D's history. And the cast of character of players will be Devin Wilson, uh, Wilson as the Tomekeeper. Um, then we have Luke Gygax playing Melf, Ed Greenwood playing Elminster, of course, Merricks DeCanneth by Keith Baker, Vladeska Drakov with Elise, played by Lisa Teague, uh, Loholt Linvender by Tommy Gofton, and many other famous guests, B. Zelda, Deborah Ann Wall, Stod Swashwick, and others. And the idea is that this stream's going to give us kind of a 50th year retrospective, it sounds like. And to tie into it, there is an epic adventure called Proxy Hunt, written by the D&D admins Greg Marks and Tony Winslow Brill, the AL admins, and then also with Tommy Gofton. And this will pick up the pieces of in, in the city of Sigil, where Legacy of Worlds, the stream ends. And the legendary heroes are in need of an army of adventurers from their home worlds to help search for a missing person. And the, the kind of fun thing of this in terms of Adventures League play is you can bring, for the first time ever, characters from any of the storylines. So you can bring your Dragonlance character, your Ravenloft character, your Eberron character, your Forgotten Realms character, any of these, out of Spelljammer, out of any of these campaigns. And they're all, it's all legal for you to bring those characters because you're coming to Sigil and you want to save the multiverse. Um, there is an emphasis on problem solving over grinding combat, uh, all pillars of play. During the epic, several special guests will play surprise roles. There will be special prizes. And later, the epic will be available on the DMs Guild and have rules for solo table play. So you don't have to be at GaryCon to participate. Um, and it's a four-hour event for levels 8 to 13, it sounds like. Yeah, so it is there and it will be available for you after GaryCon. So if you're at GaryCon, you get a chance to play in the premiere and participate in the full epic. And then afterwards, you can play at a single table if you choose, or maybe at an epic at your local convention. So and it looks like thank you, Teos, for recognizing that news. Yeah, and it sounds like this may be kind of helping to, because it's called, you know, 50th, uh, the, the title of it is Celebrate Dungeons Dragons 50th Adventures League. Looks like this may launch sort of the Dungeons & Dragons 50th event for the Adventures League. So we can see it maybe starting at GaryCon and, and going for a year. It's pretty cool. So we've gotten through our news and our listening questions, and now we are getting into our main topic here on Mastering Dungeons. We are going to take a look at the next part of the Turn of Fortune's Wheel adventure from the Planescape set teos has his book out it is hitting him in the face and he is ready he is ready to discuss chapters 12 and 13. so the first part of the adventure was getting through sigil uh going there waking up in the mortuary figuring out what what was going on you know that there's a problem in the multiverse and that you're glitching there is a glitch factor where if you okay. die, you come back Sean. as someone else. Sean. Yeah. Big spoiler mm -hmm. warning as mm -hmm. with all of our episodes on this oh, subject. Yeah. So prepare for all the spoilers. Yeah. We're going to spoil the whole adventure, in fact, during this recap. So if you don't want that spoiled, back out now. Sorry. Go ahead, Sean. Yep. <laughs> back out now. All right. So you, you go through all of that in Sigil, and then you are told by Shemeska, 
who turns into your your patron, your matron, I guess, uh, for for this adventure, at least at first. She wants you to go find a Modrond named Rome, who she says escaped from her employ in her, her casino. So off you go into the Outlands looking for this Modron. And we covered all the chapters that cover the gate towns that you have to visit. Because to find Rome, you need to take his Mimir and refill it with information. And once it's refilled, it reforms, and then it can tell you more about its time with Rome. So in, in what we covered before, it was the gate towns. Now we're going to talk about two chapters. The first is the ex Outlands Explorations. So these are encounters, or these are supposed to be encounters that take place as you're moving between the gate towns. And then the next chapter, chapter 13, is called Secrets of the Spire. That's where you learn where Rome was or is, and you can go to the spire to search for him. All right, so let's talk about chapter 12 first. I'm going to read you the blurb, and then I'm going to get Teos's take. Mm. This chapter presents encounters for use while it Characters explore the Outlands. These events aren't vital to the adventure and can be used in any order. Some reinforce recurring themes in the adventure, while others are exciting digression. Use these events and the encounter tables in Mort's Planar Parade to further develop the Outlands. These events don't influence uh, when characters should advance in level. All right, Teos, that was the mandate that they've set themselves for this chapter. What do you think? I think a lot of things. Uh, I don't think they mm -hmm. followed on this mandate. It's a good mandate. Mm -hmm. I don't think they're mm -hmm. usually exciting. Uh, they can be interesting, uh, but I don't think they're exciting digressions, as I said here. I don't know that they really reinforce recurring themes, and but we'll talk about what they do that maybe is what they're planning on this. Um, the other thing is just, this is great. I'd forgotten about it, right? At the end of last chapter, I was like, well, there should have been a thing of like, what do we find? Because we're supposed to be going back and forth on this walking castle. And then, I, and then it was like, oh, look, here's this chapter that are the things. And it does mention it in the chapter before all the gate towns, but it's very brief. And I just think this should have been earlier so that you remember it and, and, and use it. Um, and, and maybe some reminders in there, but I, I know it's always tied on space, but, but it's easy to forget. Um, we have to go to a lot of different gate towns. I think it's seven of them. And we are given, what, three events? Mm -hmm. Which mm -hmm. seems a little low. Uh, three events and a table. Yeah. Um, but okay. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it's a short adventure. So what are you going to do? Um, mm -hmm. Any other thoughts at the high level, or should we talk about the planar glitch table? Uh, let's talk about this planar glitch table, because like you, I thought, okay, cool. This is mm -hmm. what we asked for at the end of, of the last thing. We're like, boy, there should be something. And, oh, here it is. Cool. Yeah. Good. And th that, that right up front thing, I'm like, cool. This is exactly what you need. You need to have these, these things to tie these gate towns together, because the gate towns themselves really didn't push you toward 
the main story. So right. here's where this will happen. This is this is going to be great. And so the first section is called Planar Glitch. And again, I think, great. Now we're going to know how the glitch is affecting things because that's what we said last time. We said the planar glitch really doesn't come into at least in any significant way that I saw any of the gate town chapters. Everything is business as usual there. Or if it's not business as usual, it's not because of any glitch that right. it's not business as usual. So, okay, cool. Let, let's see. And so we get this section called planar glitch and they give us a table. I, uh, the warning bells go off. Okay, if you if it's a table, maybe it's maybe it's going to be a great table that that does everything I need it to do. And so they say six six encounters. It's a the glitch encounter table. And I'm like, here we go. Encounters. Encounter one. Basically, the spire in the distance looks broken because of these strange clouds that are hovering around it. But then a few hours later. The clouds dissipate and the, and the, the spire is fine. Hmm. And I went, a glitch encounter table. I don't think my definition of encounter is the same as Wizards Designer's mm -hmm. definition of encounter. Well, and this was uh, an exciting digression. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, making books is hard making oh, yeah. adventures is hard it's it's hard work it takes so much creativity hard work and then repetition play mm -hmm. testing iterating figuring out what works and what doesn't uh, to make a really really good adventure you need to do that and at this point i was beginning to think they're either really low on space and it, it, they may have had to cut out mm. the cool stuff that they were going to put in. Mm. I've been in that situation before with publishers yeah. where I thought I had, uh, I thought I had 50,000 words. It turns out I only had 15,000. Okay. What do you cut? You, you cut the stuff that's the guts of it to give the skeleton of it. And maybe that's what happened here, but it certainly doesn't help a game master who wants to run encounters by presenting something that's one line they can see in the distance. Uh, so and, what's and number two on the it, right? So you could say, oh, go ahead. You can rephrase it to say, here's the approach, right? You're going to be, you want to have a small travel. You want to travel between the gate towns. So, each of those seven mm -hmm. times, which is maybe eight or some number of travel sequences that's around seven to nine. Um, so as you're doing that, what can you do? And you could give the advice of saying, look at the book where we talk about these things and pick some features to describe. Then maybe choose something mm -hmm. from this table to add to that. If you like building random encounters, mm -hmm. you can then play off of these things to make it a full encounter. But this acts like this on its own will do all the work for you, dear DM. And no, it will not. Your characters will look at you and blink as you tell them about the Spire thing. And one of two things will happen. They'll either just blink and go, okay, and now what? Or they will try to do things because they so desperately want to engage with it. Or they're that kind of player that is trying to maybe even help right. you, the DM, out by engaging with it, which is probably what I would do. I would think that there's something here. 
and I would try to do things. I would want to use skills or powers or divinations. Mm -hmm. And you as DM have nothing because you have given them all there is. There is nothing else to this. <laughs> right. Spoiler. Uh, in a spoiler. They're going to the spire. Yeah. So even having a, a DC 20 intelligence arcana check will tell you that the spire is phasing in and out at times. And when you go to chapter 13 and they're in the spire, they might be able to use this information mm -hmm. in some sort of encounter where something happens. Uh, but as it is, like you said, Teos, it's just, okay, here's a cool thing. Here's a cool, in quotes, thing. Uh, all right, and it's done. Yeah. Off we go. So, okay, maybe, maybe uh, second thing on the table is better. A Kalia Root arrives to interview the characters about their strange situation. It seeks information so greater powers and mechanists can decide whether they want to blame the characters for their reality-defined situation. Okay. At least this is interacting with something. Mm -hmm. We can maybe there's an encounter here, but it's not an encounter as described. So an encounter, what's at stake? What options do the characters have to meet the goals that the encounter sets for them? Uh, what are the consequences if the characters succeed at those goals or fail at those goals? Why is any of this interesting in and of itself? And why is it interesting in the larger framework of the story? Yeah. We are not given any of that. And it's equally aggravating because in the next chapter, it's all about that. It's all about the characters being blamed for this. Yeah. This problem that they have no, they didn't cause. So you could link it. You could say in this encounter, somebody from the Spire comes out to interview them. Then when they go to the Spire, the mm -hmm. results mm -hmm. of what happened here could affect what happens there but th there's no connection made yeah yeah and and it's not clear to me as dm what i can tell them through the colia route and and depending on how your players are going through this experience they may feel quite stymied by the lack of answers they've had about anything that they're doing right they may they've at no point are getting any real answers as to why they're a glitch what's going on and and so you might want to say to Coley wrote hey tell me about Rome uh tell me about Shemeska tell me about what's happening to the planes you know hey that spire was crooked a moment ago why you know and and there's no knowledge of what you should share or not and that's actually really important, like as important as knowing that Shemeska is the villain, at least as important is understanding what kind of information you can give out to the players so that they feel like they're making progress. But this is just, yeah, it's like a weird interview that just comes out of nowhere. And as you said, no real stakes here. It's just say whatever you want. You know, it's just like a registry point. People in you're weird enough that people in Mechanus are asking questions, but we will give you no answers, right? We'll just make that known just a checkpoint yep and so for for the next four um 
things, elements of this, this encounter table, it's pretty much the exact same thing. It's so what? It's what can the characters do? It's what are the consequences of what they do? How does it matter individually? How does it matter in the bigger story? The characters reach the next gate town and find the gate town that they just visited instead. The, the gate towns switch around after a few hours. So what? Uh, characters witness an illusionary miles-long procession of thousands of Modrons. If the characters get close, uh, if they get close, they see it's an illusion, but the Modrons look terrified. The illusion continues for an hour before vanishing. I want this to be important. I want this to be a symptom or a clue for what comes later. And maybe it is, but I'm not told that right now. Right. If it is important, let me know now. Yeah, and what happens if a uh, player decides to cast a divination based off of this, right? What should what should they learn? Yep. And and because again, there's this the whole adventure has worked really hard to not answer any questions. So can a smart thing lead to any kind of information? And what is this? And even if it, it doesn't give you information, what is it meant to really reinforce? It's just sort of an interesting piece, but we already know the things this is telling us, right? Modrons are involved, the Great March is involved. It something's wrong. You know, but we already know those things. And so it's just, and it's also that this is, it's not clear this is a glitch, right? So for all I know, mm -hmm. as a player or DM, wandering around the Outlands, there probably is some place that just gives you weird illusions that have something to do with reality, but might be wrong too. So yeah. what do you make of this as a player? Maybe you shouldn't make anything of it, right? If I see that yep. the gate towns switch places, well, cool. There is no real map to the Outlands. Everything's sort of general. Maybe that's just normal, and I shouldn't think anything of it. That is, so you know you have to be careful in a world like Planescape of what is a glitch because anything could just seem right. like normal every day, right? Yeah. To to sum that up, stories stories like this, you want to go from the known to the unknown. You want the reader, you want the person taking part in the story to understand where there is when you've crossed that line from the normal to the abnormal, from the known to the unknown. And this whole, for, for many people, the Planescape, the Outlands, Sigil, all of this is unknown to start. Yeah. So unless you reinforce what is known, none of it makes any difference in that what is supposed to be drama or contrast between the known and the unknown, the normal and the abnormal. This said encounters, what's an encounter? What, what, what would you like to see here? Yeah, I've talked about this so much that I just, I wanna throw it out there. When you create an encounter, you want it to have elements to it. If you don't have these elements, it's not, not necessarily not an encounter because you can have very simple encounters that just do very basic things, just give a piece of information. But for the most part, you want to go into an encounter with the players knowing something and then the players learning something. Mm -hmm. And that dichotomy between what they know and what they learn can, can carry a lot of weight in a story. Yeah, You want to have the characters have goals. 
Maybe the goals are long-term goals that they've had since the start of the campaign, or maybe it's a goal that's a very short, short-term goal, such as we just need to get through this door, or we just need to deal with these bandits. You need something for them to interact with, whether it's NPCs, threats or challenges. Even the setting itself can be uh, something to interact with. But you want to give each encounter a unique setting, if possible, just to give a little bit of difference between one encounter and the next. You want to give the player choices in meeting those goals in getting through the encounter, and then you want consequences for having this. If there are no consequences in any of the encounters in your adventure, it's not really an adventure, it's just a story. Mm -hmm. And then each encounter should have a purpose within the longer overall adventure or campaign. Why is it there? What's its point? What's it leading toward? What has it resolved and what new challenges or mysteries does it open up? You want all of those things when you create the encounter. With, with what we're given here, you need to create the encounter. Uh, you, you might be given a setting, you might be given one NPC, but you're going to have to figure out the rest of that if you want your players to feel fulfilled with the play going on at the table. Yeah, no, that's excellent, Sean. And and so we have this table with the six things, and these are not encounters. They're they're interesting, but they're they're just sort of things to witness. Um, we then have three things that I think are intended, really truly intended, as encounters. And let's let's review yeah. those and see whether they fulfill this criteria uh, and and meet kind of the larger goals that we want for the adventure itself. So the first one is Angels in the Outlands. And this is, I guess, sort of humorous in a lot of ways. It is a, essentially a baseball game between devils and angels. And it's contractually obligated. This is a thing they've agreed to do. And the prize is an innocent soul. What do you think about so this one? So there's stakes. There are stakes. Okay. So I, I, I was cool. I was, I was like, okay, this is, this is fun. This is funny. This could be good. Uh, there is, there are stakes. Uh, I was very confused with the descriptions, and I, I know I'm getting older, and I know my cognitive abilities are, even if ever so slightly, they are declining a bit. It takes me after read things a couple of times, but I just, I had no idea what was going on here at first because it talked about a gigantic flat diamond with its three points marked with square pedestals, and I'm like. A flat diamond with three points. Doesn't a diamond have four points? Maybe they're ignoring the starting and, one. A, 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 yeah, and then it said like a ringed field. And I'm like, so at first I thought it was a literal gem, a diamond. Yeah. And so I was trying to, to figure, and then I realized, oh, they're talking about a baseball diamond. Mm -hmm. And then they're, they're talking about the triangular diamond. And I'm like, but a diamond is... I, I, I'm just lost. And I had to read it a couple of times. I'm like, okay, I see what they're doing. Mm -hmm. It's a baseball field, but instead of having four bases, it has three bases. Okay, cool. And, and I was fine with the mechanics of it. I didn't even really get to, I didn't overthink that. I'm just like, okay, you get, if you get a hit, 
they might catch it. And if they, if you get a hit, they might not. If you don't get a hit and strike out. Okay, cool. Um, what, what was upsetting to me, upsetting is a strong word. What <laughs> I feel like I had to change is the whole situation. I buy the contractually obligated game once every 3,000 years over this innocent soul. I could see that being done 3,000 years ago, and they're just keeping it up because that's what they do. Okay, cool. I'll buy into that. The Modron umpire. I'm like, okay, cool. Modron's arbiters, neutral. Okay, cool. But then the, the umpire says, hey, you want to play? I'm like, wait a second. Here is the super important 3,000-year-old it's like you going to the World Cup, right? Yeah. Uh, soccer, football, finals. And it's like, hey, you want to come play? Uh, no. No, that's not what a Modron would do. Right. So what? So how can we fix it? We fix it because there's a glitch. Okay? We fix it because on one side or the other or both, there are players missing. Yeah, oh, yeah. the glitch. What do we do? Oh, he, here are some people. You two are on this team. You three are on that team. Now we can finish our game. And now yeah. the players have something, have some input into the game that makes sense. And they can actually manipulate the game. Oh, well, we're, we're stuck on the devil's side, on the fiend side of things. We're going to throw the game. Right. So now we're making checks to throw the game without letting people know that we're throwing the game. The old uh, shoeless yeah. Joe Jackson. Uh, part of it right and and it's it's not hard to fix yeah. and many dms could could do this right they, they, they'll find a way to make it work for their table uh it just needed one more iteration right yeah. it just needed yeah. that one more look through to yeah. say what's the overall scope of this adventure it's the glitch how do we incorporate it here this way yeah i mean i think it's great to just you're walking by and you see this game and suddenly you're standing there in uniform and they see you as angels mm -hmm. or devils, right? Like that could be great. I, I love this idea of yours. And, yeah. and I did not think the, of this until you said it, but once you said it, I can see lots of ways to do this, right? And it's really around thinking, mm -hmm. I have to activate the glitch in these. This is an opportunity for the characters to reinforce mm -hmm. what's going on and the story to reinforce itself. And, and also to solve the problem of it being just illogical that you just get to play ball with angels and de devils. Like, why would that happen, right? It, it could also be that they're arguing with each other. And so the only way to settle it is to bring you in, right? But mm -hmm. better mm -hmm. is this. Dig into the glitch, right? That's that's what makes it work. Um, and the soul could be, so, as you, you postulate here in the show notes, it could be somebody that has information about the glitch or somebody that you've met, somebody important to you. Maybe somebody you just remember from a past life. It could be one of your incarnations, maybe. I don't know if that can work, you know, but something to to make it important um, so that you care about the outcome at a, at a personal level, right? Then this becomes yeah. a true encounter. <laughs> right, right. And then as soon as you add the consequences and you give the player some agency that makes sense, that they can work toward a goal, uh, now you've got not just an okay encounter, not just a funny encounter, but a funny and important encounter yeah. to the entire adventure. And I'm going to uh, say, so that let's look at the next one. The, 
Oh, yeah. Go ahead. And just in terms of timing, uh, just to make it fast, right? Mausoleum of Chronepsis is a very interesting concept. It's a neat idea because we have these time dragons introduced in the other part of the planescape in the Mortes uh, Planar Parade. Um, and this is the idea of a time dragon appearing non-linearly to you or like you know in, in the order that you experience it is not the order that the dragon is experiencing it so you meet them at different ages out of order and one of the things that i would say right off the bat is like well this will not be memorable if you run it all at once or it won't be as memorable but here is where one encounter can act like several if you break this up so you run it in this order that they presented here but at different times right between gate towns two and three they meet the time dragon the first time and then between yep. gate times four and five right and so on that changes it so that it really builds upon itself and you start figuring it out yep no i this i was like cool yes Th this is this is good this is uh this is what what i want when i open a wizards of the coast book and it tells me that this is an encounter that i'm going to run in this campaign yeah, it's really uh, clever. You still idea. could have tied it to the glitch a, a little more, um, but I, I like the way they do it. And a lot of times that people try to get too clever with these time travel things. Yeah. This is qu really quite simple. Yeah. Um, I, the only thing little, I, I'm yeah, a little worried about, the other thing I'm worried about is you get a scale if you succeed at this. Uh, it's not terribly hard to succeed. You just basically have to be a normal human, human being. Um, <laughs> But they, you get a scale, and you can summon this this time dragon once to help you. Dragon. And it's a CR eighteen monster. Yeah, no, ancient. It's an ancient time dragon. I think it's adult. Uh, so it's okay. It was adult when you first met it. It's ancient at the end, and then it's a wormling in between. But it's I may have read that. I think uh, you summoned the adult sort of. version, but it's still formidable. Okay. Yeah. Um, Maybe it's CR twelve. The then? dragon is ancient. Yeah. yeah, you can you can bring in the the adult time dragon, which okay. Oh no, that's CR. That's challenge rating eighteen. Adult. Okay. Yes, it's a CR eighteen monster that just comes in and, and solves a problem for you. I would say at it some will, point. Perhaps the um, last problem you encounter. Who knows? Um, <laughs> if you yeah. if you do like many players and hoard it till the total last minute. Um, yep. I did find that this is a little, it's a little simple. I like simplicity because yes, this is already complex, so keep it simple. But a lot of the scenes are sort of like response, like, like the dragon says X, you will respond with something. Yeah. But you're not doing a lot for a lot of these scenes. You're sort of observing and taking it in. And I would like it if there was a little more experience there you know a little more engagement mm -hmm. versus observation but it's a very fun concept and, and i like it yeah yeah it it's it's simplified in that it gives you the answer mm -hmm. you just have to remember to make use of the answer yeah. and and yeah we've talked about it before with puzzles right you can't make a puzzle too simple right. because there will always be groups out there that for one reason or another even though the answer is literally setting right in front of them, cannot do it. So I'm, I'm cool with simplicity when it has to do with these sort of timey-wimey, uh, puzzly things. Yeah. And then the last encounter uh, in this chapter is Semayunya's Bog. Uh, just up front, Semayunya is one of my favorite beings in all of D&D. &D. Wow. Uh, and 
my my Semyonia is a god of lizard folk, who, as opposed to Sesnik, Sesnik is the the god of the evil, demonic sort of aspect of lizard folk mm -hmm. over time. Semyonia is the nature related, survival related, very sort of placid, um, placid and nurturing sort of, of deity mm -hmm. whereas here some is is like hulk God hogan bros. um or or hans and franz yeah uh, which which uh, it's fine right it did that that's just a personal thing um overall this encounter is great you meet jogging lizard folk who are basically out uh they're training for a triathlon okay and you come across them and they're and they're like, bro, do you even lift? And you're like, yeah, I lift. And they're like, well, prove it. Take <laughs> us back to our realm and we'll show you lifting. So you go back and you you lift. And if you lift better than they lift, uh, Semayunya shows up and says, bro, did you just lift? And he's like, yeah, I just lifted. <laughs> and and then Semayunya says, oh well, that was great lifting here. Uh, <laughs> have 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 some stuff uh, which is i mean the stuff is important because it's it's a, a broken alchemy jug as i would call it yeah it's an alchemy it's an alchemy jug but it's for bros <laughs> and not the kind of bros that like drink but the kind of bros that are like keto centric um because you don't get any alcohol out of it and you definitely don't get mayonnaise out of it. Uh, what's even the point of an alchemy jug water I mean, come on yeah probably uh probably some rock star yeah. uh, in there uh, definitely you know some some creatine uh stuff you get at like GNC that's what comes out of this alchemy jug yeah I um I think it's really fun I and I love these kinds of you know encounters where there's a clear thing that you can ham up right like those are the best right you just know okay I've got these mm -hmm. bro dudes Yep. I can totally have fun. We're all going to have a fun time. We're all going to be laughing. It's going to be very memorable. So that I love 100%. The only thing I, I have as a problem is, is, you know, we get to where we're going to meet the God. And I think that, that <clears throat> there's a lot of opportunity here for the, the players to want to have certain interactions with the God that the encounter is not designed to provide to them. It's really provided to say, Here's the reward. Good job, bro. I'm off, bro. Later. And and so that's mm -hmm. that's where I just feel like this could be yet another attempt, right? The downer to this could be yet another attempt where you're like, hey, tell me who I am. And they're like, cool, bro. See you later. Can't answer your questions. Right. Modron March is going out of control. We think, yeah, I'm off later. You know, like, but you're a deity. Yeah, don't care. Right. Like it could so that's the only little bit there where i just feel and, and it could just be easily solved by other places where they could get answers so that this could just be enjoyed on its own right versus ah a deity this person will help us with our cause you yeah. know <laughs> yeah yeah all i know it bro is when you're in the spire oh you're going to be in the spire and when you're in there watch out for webs yeah, like anything like that. anything yeah. that's that that shows a deity level intelligence uh yeah so oh, just man. just throw something in throw something in that will be helpful later uh 
Do you want to do you want to march on through chapter 13 or do you want to uh let's power through? We can do it. Wait. We're we're gonna power through. All right. So once you have filled the Mimir with the memories, you realize that Rome is likely in the spire or has something to do with the spire. So you, off to the spire you go. And again, I was super confused because when I think of the spire, I think of just like a very narrow thing going up into the sky. Mm -hmm. But it talks about miles of caverns within the spire. And so I right away my mind is is racing and the description is something that I can't quite grok as I'm reading it or even as I read the text around it. Um, so I'm gonna let you take over from there. Well, I mean, I I really hit a wall when I read this part because to me, something that's really important adventures is nailing the reveal. And I mm -hmm. think that those are critical moments, right? There have been, we've talked about how there's a dearth of getting any answers and you have been led on a huge chase, right? You have had to go to all of these different spots, gate town after gate town after gate town for the Mimir to refill its memories. That begs payoff. So what is the payoff we get? Mm -hmm. We get this, oh, go back a few chapters and, you know, read them this box on or this section on the Great Modron March. And here's the information. It happens every 289 years. Lots of Modrons die as they traverse the plains, gathering information to realign the workings of Mechanus. The March enters the Outlands, outlands through Automata, visits all the gate towns, stops in the Realmani community of Dendratus, goes to other plains until it reaches Mechanus again. The last march was ahead of schedule with many irregularities, which all comes from the 2E adventures. And I'm thinking to myself, the only part here that's at all new to me it, as a player, as a DM, whatever, is this stopping at this Romani community of Dendratus. Is that something yeah. nobody knows? Probably not, because if we read like the 2E source books, lots of people come along this Modron march because it becomes a huge planar mm -hmm. thing. Lots of people care about the march because your gate town is going to get invaded. They might stomp through it. So there should be all manner of information on this thing. Everything that was just shared is basic encyclopedia history. And we have a library in our walking castle. In fact, we used it in an earlier encounter to answer a question about the Outlands. Why is this a great reveal? There's nothing yeah. here to my knowledge, that play, would satisfy the players. It's just sort of like, okay, you know, I guess maybe if you know nothing about Planescape, then this might be interesting. But it also doesn't, this Mimir was accompanying Rome. We've just reset it. Mm -hmm. What was Rome up to? Why was Rome doing? Yeah, got nothing for you. Here's the great Modern March yeah. section of the encyclopedia. Yeah, I found this hugely disappointing. And then again, we just have to do a thing cuz, right? Like, None of the information leads us to an aha or a real desire or goal that relates to us. We just, the only possible thread here is go to the Romani community and see whether Rome is there. It's another mm -hmm. gate town experience, but you know, <laughs> am I wrong in this, Sean? Right. Yep. No, no, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. And it's, yeah, it, I, I felt the same way. And it doesn't even tell you in this chapter. It makes you go to a different chapter yeah. to read to read all that. And and I was like, you know, anything, anything more. Um, 
you know, it, it just, it points you to the next thing, like you said. And when you go there, I at least felt a moment of joy when the characters get there and I was reading that they can't get in, they won't be let in, no matter what they try, there's only one way in and out, it's through this gate that's heavily guarded. The settlers comes out and says, hey, I'm looking for y'all. <laughs> Are you blank, blank, blank? And, and, and uh, so, and I thought, okay, at least we have a way forward. At least we may have a thread that will have encounters that I can run for my players. And I actually like the fact that Acetylus is sneaky. Mm -hmm. And you get a chance as the game master to actually play an NPC that is might be fun to play and fun to, to manipulate the characters with because Acetylus isn't there to be helpful. Acetylus is there to assassinate the characters. So Acetylus is going to help you get through this spire because uh, Acetylus wants to find Rome as well. Mm -hmm. And you know more about Rome than, than she does. So she will use your knowledge while seeming to help you. And you can have some fun playing with that and maybe revealing some things slowly over time. So the characters don't get that turn. Aha. I'm actually going to kill you moment. Give yeah. them a chance to, uh, and, and I want to be positive about it. I, I do like those aspects, but she is, you know, like a weird, the Romani are these weird beings of, of metal, right? So she's quite alien mm -hmm. looking, um, looks like some kind of wild high production value sci-fi sci cyborg kind of thing, right? Like floating head that doesn't, you know, and then mm -hmm. the shoulders and some spiral, spiral of metal or something. So I expect a sort of, like, I'd like some more, not just if 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 she was a human, I would still want more guidance on how to role play her. Mm -hmm. But she's also incredibly For alien. Sure. And so I would like some things mm -hmm. that some characteristics, some way that I could play off of this, especially because she has a plus two charisma. So whatever lies she's spinning, mm -hmm. when that character says, do I think that's true? You know, it might not turn out very well for Aristoteles. And so how does she explain herself? Right. And that could be where right. you a little more could help guide that experience so you can pull it off. Yeah, she's not being forthright with you, but you know, he, you her personality makes sense as to what she's after and what's going on here. And so you right. want to keep around. She also suffers, and I think all the NPCs in this adventure suffer from fading into the background to the point where you as DM don't know when they're there or not there. And all of a sudden you get a like, oh, and then she'll do this. And you're like, oh, were you there still? I, you know, I, I'd forgotten about you. And there's a real trouble, the real th trouble throughout this adventure with the, with the NPCs. But this one as well here that I think it, you kind of forget when Esotelis is with you or not with you. And, you know, there are encounters within the Spire where you are searching for Rome. You're questioning people. It's it's a little better than what we've had so far in, in terms of them being encounters, but it's still there still isn't a logical flow per se. There there mm -hmm. are still some connectivity issues. Um, but let's just say you get through it, you you actually find Rome within within the spire. Yeah. And you can find uh, our show notes for all the all that, the details. <laughs> yeah. All of yes. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Acetylus will attack because she's an assassin who is meant 
she's been ordered to kill you because obviously you are a symptom of the glitch and apparently killing the symptom will kill, you know, will cure the disease, but it obviously won't. Yeah. Uh, Which, but can I say, Sean, you, you then, oh, go ahead. Just to add yeah. that one thing I really like is that they explicitly say that as she's attacking you, she explains what is, why she has to kill you. Mm -hmm. That's a great touch, right? Because right. it's the, hey, yeah. this is not personal. You're, you're a multiverse. You're causing the demise of the multiverse. So you got to go, right? That's fun. And that's neat. And maybe could lead to some interesting, right. you know, we're going to capture her and, and yeah. send her back to, to her town. We're, you know, we're not going to kill her. Something like that could be interesting. That could play out in an interesting way or even convince her somehow to go with you. Who knows? Right up to the DM. That's a neat touch. I like that a lot. The, yeah, they, it, she is given a personality. So even though, and that's, I like that juxtaposition because she is alien and she is weird, but she has this sort of homey, hometown, deep south, drawly, how y'all doing? Oh, golly gee willikers. Oh, that's what good luck. You know, that y'all are here, you know, that sort of thing. And then she can continue that as she's trying to kill you. Uh, it ain't personal, y'all. I just, <laughs> you got to go. When you got to go, you got to go. Yeah. Uh, and then and then you find Rome, and Rome tells you not a heck of a lot. <laughs> no, no. I, I, right? I, I even face planted in my book when I read what Rome shares. It's not terrible, but it just feels, again, like yeah. it's not payoff, right? It's not big payoff. Right. It's it's yeah, the I escaped from these people that are holding Modrons and they're making these Modrons do bad things, but I can't tell you what those bad things are. But it's bad. Oh, it's bad. And in a secret and, prison, but oh, I can't yeah, lead you to it. Right. Right. And I, I escaped from the casino uh using this this platinum coin. What do we do now? And I'm like, yeah, what do we do now? There's a, and there's an interesting little logic weirdness here, which is that the Modrons were held in a secret prison. Rome escapes, is captured and taken to a fancy place, the casino. So I don't know that the mm -hmm. secret prison and the casino are linked, may or may not be. In the casino, right. used a platinum casino chip to escape through a portal behind a big wheel. Here's the chip. And I've been on the run since then. So I've been through Sigil and the Outlands to avoid recapture. And this is interesting. But also to recreate the march and complete it. I guess because Rome is one of the original marchers from the last one. And never got to complete it. Which then makes me say, wait, Rome was at every gate town we just visited. And this never came up. And if we had asked anybody, hey, was Rome here? What were we supposed to have answered? And if the answer was yes, what should we have learned? Right. Like, how did you get out of carcery where yeah. we were? You know, any of this. Right. Yeah. Like, it's just it's one of these things where I'm like, man, I feel like this was just slammed in here with not enough thought and development as to how to make this work for the players. 
the part that is obvious is, well, you're not an accountant. Shemeska talks about the fancy fox fiend. That's obviously Shemeska. So Shemeska's lying to us. Shemeska's evil. We already knew she was evil, but but manipulating us. Um, and something's going on. So I guess the idea is confront Shemeska using this chip that I've given you, this key. But I can see a lot of things that players would want to do especially in the type of campaigns that I think we increasingly want to run, right? Like you joined a faction. Why not mobilize the faction? Especially if you joined a faction that's in charge of mm -hmm. law or something like that. Here's a person trying to, Shemeska is mm -hmm. trying to take down the multiverse. I would like to DM, go to my faction and plea that Shemeska has broken the rules and hey, Rome can prove it. She's trying to destroy the multiverse, take her down. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right yeah but no the idea is you've got to do this yeah. one thing there's only one thing you can do and you've got to go in and i don't know that that's a clear obvious goal or or what the players would want to do i don't know they're literally gods yeah here, could we could go visit that... a plan could be to go visit one of these gods right. take me to the god of law and let's stop right. the multiverse i think that my if i'm a cleric i think my deity who's right over there cares about these things that are happening i'm gonna go talk to my deity and, and you know you as i was reading this i thought okay if if my group was playing it or if i was in a group playing this at this point we would be like what do we do what do we do because we don't have a clear direction forward what do we do i don't know and somebody will come up with some stupid ass plan <laughs> and somebody will come up with a even worse plan and, we, and you know what I'm going to be like? We've got this scale from a time dragon. Let's polish this thing and let's talk to the time dragon. Maybe the time dragon mm -hmm. can give us a clue about how to move forward from here. Because I'm totally lost in terms of what to do or where to go uh, from here. Yeah. But that's just me. Yeah. Uh, it, I really hit uh, a, a wall in both these chapters, despite the fact that they have some really nice parts to them, uh, and at times really do deliver on what I want out of a Planescape adventure with some really fantastic wild places. Like I can see these in a movie that was a Planescape movie. I think a lot of this can mm -hmm. be fun, but the motivation and the goals often far short, the reveals, the payoffs fall short, and the experiences that would reinforce the overall story fall short or, or don't aren't tangible to, to players, I think. Uh, and maybe not rewarding to the DM. Yeah. And this is one of these where we end chapter 14, and I think the feeling that the designers had is, you're gonna be so excited to go face the villain and say, we want answers. And I'm like, that is not what you do with somebody who can end the multiverse and we, who we would expect to be super powerful. I mean, they could have any number of people. I mean, the, the, in the, there were like, I forget what creatures there were, but there were fiends, you know, working as security guards. like. Can one just simply go into the 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 uh, casino? I don't know that that's clear, right? Like, it's very smart yeah. to think you need backup or something else or some other way to solve it. But yeah, I don't know. Well, that was our look at chapters twelve and thirteen. Next time we will go to chapter fourteen and beyond to get to the final part, uh, the final couple chapters of this Planescape adventure. So with that, I want to thank everyone for listening. I want to thank specifically 
our Masters of the Multiverse. We do appreciate our Master of the Realm supporters who get a call out in our show notes and our Master of Dungeon supporters for helping us out. Our Masters of the Multiverse, this is for you, Keith Ammon of the Masters Know What They're Doing, Craig Bailey, Steve Bissonette, Merrick Blackman, Evil John, Darren Chandler, Seth Eckel, Andy Edmonds at Nerdronomicon, Nathan Fuller, The Mighty Jerd, Ben Heisler and Paige Lightman, Sean Hurst, Chad Jackson, Ryan King, Jim Klingler, a.k.a. DM Prime Mover, Chad Lynch, The Math Magician, Eric Mengi, The Micro Ant, Sean Molly, Falcon Neal, Mike Olson, Post Fiction RPG Audio, Robert Pasley, Vladimir Prenner from Croatia, Chance Russo at Drago Russo, Ross Sandberg, Andy Shockney, Krishna Simonse, Trace, Joe Tyler, James Walton, and Graham Ward. Thank you so much for your support. You can become a patron of the show if you go to patreon.com slash masteringdnd. You, too, can be on this list of esteemed and renowned folk. If you can't help us monetarily, no problem. If you could, though, give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Let everybody know what you think of the show, especially if you like it. Uh, and that helps us get out there in the world just a little bit more. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, which is uh, Mastering Dungeons. Teos, where can people find you? Ooh, find me at alphastream.org. My latest video just came up this morning. Uh, it is all about how to hone your skills as a creator. And I use a lot of advice from friends like Sean and others that have been imparted upon me throughout the years. Where are you, Sean? You can find me. You can find me on all the socials at Sean Merwin. Follow the podcast at all of those places at Mastering D&D. You can also uh, join the community, ask questions to us via our Patreon page. If you join our Patreon, you get access to the Discord, where all sorts of amazing conversations happen. And you can always go to our YouTube channel, Mastering Dungeons. So, Teos, it looks like we've survived the Outlands, and we're heading back to Sigil. So what are we going to do now? Mm. Well, I think that uh, this adventure has had a descending uh, DC. It started really high. So if I just run it over and over again, it's going to get easier and easier. And that's the solution. <laughs> Two words, man. Play ball! <laughs> <laughs>